Thank you, Joe. My name is Pam, and I'm an alcoholic. I wonder if we could have everybody move in up a little bit more. I feel like I don't want to be giving a lecture. I want to be having an AA meeting. So I would really appreciate it if we could kind of all consolidate. That way, I feel like a little, a little more of everyone's uh, strength too. Thank you. I'm a nephrologist who currently is not practicing, and I will tell you a little bit about how that all came to be, but um, give you a little background first. Um, you know, I grew up in uh, pretty normal childhood. My parents didn't drink, um, and... Um, I was loved, and I think I knew that, but I never felt loved enough. In fact, I never felt anything enough, you know? I was never smart enough. I was never attractive enough. I was never, never had enough friends, never had enough of anything, no matter how much I had. Um, I was a perfectionist. I was a high achiever. Um, probably like many of us in this room. Um, and I was pretty successful. Um, and I learned early on that <clears throat> the way to be successful was to work hard and, um, <clears throat> use my will. And, um, <clears throat> that got me through college, that got me through medical school. That got me to residency and fellowship. And um, I thought that's how you did life. Self-sufficient uh, work, of course you will. Um, I had a lot of experiences early on that should have been red flags for me, uh, that I had a problem with drugs and alcohol, but I mostly ignored those. Um, I started drinking in high school and started smoking pot in high school. And when I got to college, I pretty much did whatever drugs I could get my hands on that I was introduced to. And it was all just experimentation, just for fun, uh, because I was curious. In medical school, um, me and a couple of friends, we were like, you know, the pharmacology field testers. We, uh, <laughs> whatever drug we were learning about, that's what we wanted to try, and we did. Um, so I did pharmaceutical things, whatever we could get our hands on in those days. You could get samples of a lot of things. So, um, and um, in my uh, residency training, I, I, well, I should say first in medical school, my first year of medical school, I started doing speed to study and, um, got to a point where I couldn't study without speed and, um, was using more and more. The end of the year final exams were coming. I didn't want to crash. So I kept using even after I didn't want to use anymore. And, um, I failed my first year exams and 
when I stopped, I was crazy for a week or so. You know, paranoid, unable to concentrate, all the symptoms of withdrawal of speed. That should have been a red flag, um, but it wasn't. You know, my conclusion was, whoa, speed's bad. I better not use any more speed. You know, I still kept drinking. I still kept smoking pot. I, you know, still kept doing whatever else I could get my hands on. Um, in residency, um, I started using cocaine and, um, <clears throat> we, we eventually started shooting up cocaine. Um, you know, we were residents. We had all the sterile stuff, uh, dissolved it in sterile water, you know, used sterile technique to inject it. So, you know, it was okay. The only problem, of course, it was street cocaine. So, <laughs> you know, but at the time it seemed like we were being safe about it. And I loved it. And, um, I probably would have kept doing that except, uh, I had no money and, um, uh, my contact moved away. And I vaguely knew like this was not good, you know? And so I was like, okay, I shouldn't shoot up any drugs anymore. Um, but again, I didn't, it didn't equate to me like, hmm, this was maybe a problem. I was always the one at the party who wanted to stay later, who wanted to do more, who, you know, the next morning was ready to go again. Um, everybody else was crashing and falling asleep, and I was like, hey, you know, let's get some more. Um, so, you know, again, now when I look back on all those things, I know that, you know, I was destined to, uh, to be an alcoholic and addict, I think. Um, but that didn't stop me. I, um, married a man who, um, I didn't really like, but I thought I loved. <laughs> um, later I found out I didn't love him either, but, um, at the time it seemed like the thing to do. And besides, he liked to drink just as much or more than I did. Um, the best thing about that marriage was, um, the four beautiful children I have, one of who's sitting here with me today. Um, I, uh, had a successful career as an academic nephrologist, did research, uh, taught, uh, moved up the ranks of academia, but I was miserable. No matter what I achieved, it wasn't enough, and um, um, my marriage was unhappy, um, lots of stressors, raising four children, and um, and that played a lot into the role of, into the difficulties of the marriage, I think. I um, continued to drink and smoke pot whenever I could, on weekends, on vacations, but I had some control at that point. Um, and then I developed uh, some pretty severe depression. Uh, depression does run in my family, and um, I um, had some postpartum depression after the birth of my second son, and after the birth of my twin daughters. Um, I think I never really recovered from that depression. Um, 
just was severe enough to land me in the hospital. Um, and there was a lot of denial involved with all that. A lot of difficulty with me accepting that. And, um, for a long time, I medicated my depression with alcohol. Um, some of the more miserable drinking time was during that time when I was really depressed and, um, um, I would come home from work. I'd maybe have a few in the evening after my kids went to bed, after my husband went to bed, I would stay up two, three in the morning drinking scotch on the rocks by myself. Obviously, that didn't help my depression. <laughs> and, um, along the way, um, I was on multiple medications and nothing really worked. And my drinking got worse and my depression got worse. Um, my husband and I separated and got divorced and I found myself with a lot of time on my hands without my children because we were uh, sharing time with the kids. And that's when I really started to drink. Um, that's when it became kind of every day after work, as soon as I could get home, start drinking, drink till I pass out, wake up the next morning, swear I wasn't going to do that again, get out of work, head to the liquor store, start drinking, pass out. Um, and it became a daily thing. Um, I remember um, being referred to um, a CD counselor who, um, who works with physicians. And um, I, after an hour talking with her, she said, you need to go to inpatient treatment. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, you don't even know me. It's not a problem. I can stop whenever I want. You know, this is, I had no idea how out of control I was. And I really meant it when I said, I'll just stop. You know, I don't need to go to treatment. I'll just stop. And that's when I found I couldn't stop. That's when I tried all the things listed in the big book. Um, you know, took a vacation that ended up being a 24-7 drunk. Uh, didn't take a vacation, <laughs> you know, switched from beer to wine, switched, you know, swore off hard liquor, all the things, and I couldn't stop. Um, to make a long story short, I ended up back on the psych ward, and then they said, okay, now you're going to treatment. <laughs> and that's how I got into my first treatment, kicking and screaming. Um, to show you how unmotivated I was, after four days in that treatment, I um, snuck out, thinking I would just uh, go down the street to the bars, have a few drinks, come back to treatment, and, uh, you know, and that would show them that I really didn't have a problem. I don't know how, <laughs> not quite sure, you know, obviously I was not thinking well. And obviously, um, I ended up blacking out, waking up in some parking lot downtown, um, and getting taken to detox. <laughs> then I was begging to go to treatment, <laughs> just to get out of detox. And I was fortunate in that they did let me go back. And I finished that treatment, and um, I didn't get it, you know. Two weeks later, I was drinking again. I went back to work like 
no problem. Okay, I did my treatment. I'm hit, I'm back. I'm ready to go. And um, I completely flopped. I started drinking in the mornings. I started coming home at lunch to drink. And I got really scared. I was going to hurt somebody. I was going to hurt one of my patients. I was, you know, I don't do a lot of invasive things, but I was putting in dialysis catheters and internal jugular veins while I was withdrawing from alcohol and shaking. And uh, So I went back to treatment. Um, I'm going to skip over some of the gory details because I ended up going to treatment about four or five times in the course of two years, one of those being an extended treatment for five months and then four months in a uh, halfway house, and I was using before I got out of the halfway house. I um, just could not deal with life, um, with my life, without using. I just didn't know how to deal with the emotional pain I had, with the relationship difficulties I had, without numbing out. Um, I got kicked out of, after nine months of, of that treatment and halfway house. Uh, they found out I was using, I got kicked out the day before I was supposed to graduate. Um, that sobered me up for a few months. <laughs> and eventually I was using again. Um, but I was very fortunate that I had some people that stuck by me through all that. And, were still there for me when I was finally ready to ask for help. I um to be willing to um to really do whatever it took. I became so miserable. I hated my life. I couldn't stand drinking wasn't doing it for me anymore, but I couldn't stand not drinking. Um and I finally got to a point where I was ready to do whatever it took. And I was fortunate that there were still some people there who were willing to help me and direct me. And I went to a um, a AA spiritual residential retreat um, for 30 days. And um, the unique part about that program was that um, it was run by AA people, AA Volunteers came in and did the big book study. AA volunteers came in and drove us to meetings. AA volunteers um, um, were really where we got the message. And something finally stuck. Something finally, I remember a moment when I said, you know, they're telling their story and they were like, they're like worse than me. You know, they went to prison. They did, you know, they did some things I haven't even done. And, um, now they're sober and they're telling me they're happy, joyous, and free. If it'll work for them, maybe it'll work for me. And that was a huge moment for me. <clears throat> I also did a third step. Um, I remember we had a third step workshop. We all kneeled and held hands and said the third step prayer. And that was very powerful for me. Um, also did a one-on-one -on -one third step with the spiritual advisor there. And when I walked out of that room, everything was different. The sky was bluer. The 
trees were greener. And I felt hope that I hadn't felt in years, years. Just a little ray of hope, like, okay, things are going to be okay. And that changed everything for me. Um, I um, got out of that program, and I didn't have cravings anymore. I, I had always had crazy obsessions to use. The kind where you're driving along and you're going, no, I'm not going to that liquor store. No, I'm not going to that liquor store. Oh, I'm in the liquor store parking lot. You know, um, those were gone. And uh, I stayed sober for four years. I worked the program. I um, did the steps. I had a big book thumper sponsor. Um, we read the book together. And... Um, for most of those years, uh, my life was pretty good. Uh, towards the, as I was approaching that last year, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I started kind of pulling away from things. I had, my license had been suspended after those four or five treatments and not being able to stay sober. I got my medical license back. I changed sponsors to a social sponsor, you know, rather than a, a big book sponsor. Somebody who could introduce me to a lot of people in the program, and we had a lot of fun, but we didn't really talk about AA all that much. Um, and I kind of, you know, I let up on my spiritual program. And then uh, one of my 14-year-old daughters tried to kill herself, and I lost it. Um, what I saw in her was <clears throat> all that same depression that I'd struggled with, all the same misery, all the same hopelessness, and I felt lots of guilt. And and she was very angry with me, mad that I hadn't been there for her in her early years, which was true. Um, and I just... You know, and I wasn't spiritually fit. And one night I drank again uh, after four years. Um, and once I drank, you know, it wasn't long before I drank again. And then I was smoking pot again. And I was back working. I was being monitored. I did all kinds of attempts to manipulate the system. Um, so I wouldn't get caught. I had received a lot of grace. I had been taken back to, at, uh, the same place where I had worked before when my license was suspended. They gave me a second chance and I was using and lying and all of the same, um, all of the same things started happening again. My depression got worse. I couldn't stand myself. Um, because I knew what I was doing. I was scared that I wasn't functioning well as a physician, uh, but I couldn't stop. And that went on for about a year. And um, finally I uh, had a positive yearn for cannabis. I knew what was going to happen. You know, I had, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to get caught in a, on a urine or at work smelling like alcohol, but, you know, that 
powerlessness over my drugs and alcohol were so strong that, uh, you know, there was no stopping. <clears throat> um, and sure enough, I got caught, lost my job, license got suspended again, um, and I went back to this spiritual retreat. Thank God. Um, and again, while there, I had, I had some moments of grace. Um, I got a new sponsor. She told me to start looking at everything I was powerless, powerless over in my day. Spent a day doing that, you know, I'm powerless over the food, I'm powerless over the fact they make you get up at 7.15 to do meditation, I'm powerless over everything, I'm powerless over that other person who's bugging me to death. And I went to sleep that night, and I woke up at 3 in the morning, wide awake, with this one thought, I am so powerless over drugs and alcohol. I just, all that I had worked to get back, my license, a job, everything. I loved the job I was doing, and I just blew it all. I am so powerless. And uh, I needed that moment of clarity. Um, I did another fourth and fifth step, and during that fifth step, I had a few more moments, God moments, I would call them, if you know, um, where things that I hadn't even thought about for a long time things that I had put out of my mind suddenly came to mind and I was like, I gotta talk about this in my fourth fifth step. And I did. And <clears throat> again I felt I felt uh, a remarkable change. I felt God's grace on me and um uh, and I knew it was gonna be okay. Um I'm sober now fourteen months and um i have my license back but i don't have a job i'm looking um i had a job offer um it looked great uh and then the uh administrative people in the hmo said uh uh I'm not taking a risk on this person um my daughter who had struggled so much uh came home to live uh, after about a year and a half in residential type treatments, three months later, she, uh, took a hand through circle again, and, um, she's been back in the hospital, in and out of the hospital the last couple months, still struggling. Um, I, um, have had a lot of other challenges during this 14 months, but, I have a great sponsor who keeps me spiritually on track. And um, I know that if I rely on my higher power, I get through these things and I don't have to drink. And that's remarkable for me. Um, I've had so many moments of, of grace that um, I never was even aware of, you know, in my past life. Um, and I've... Um, I've uh, done a lot of acceptance. Um, I think that uh, I I say a mantra now that basically that I have enough. Um, I am enough. Um, 
I'm a child of the universe, worthy of dignity, respect, and recovery. I have value because my creator says so. And uh, if I remember that every day, I do okay. I also try to keep it simple. Um, if I get too complicated in my program, it doesn't work. Um, there's an old guy at one of the meetings I go to, and he's like, all you have to do is say please and thank you. Please in the morning. Please keep me sober today. Thank you at night. Thanks, God, for keeping me sober today. And sometimes, you know, in the midst of all the chaos in my life, that's kind of like all I can do. But, you know, um, that's that's really where it's at. That's really what it is. And that's, that's what I do. Um, I do service work, like the registration committee here <laughs> at this meeting. I do, uh, I sponsor people. And um, my sponsors call me a big book thumper. <laughs> Never thought I would be called a big book thumper, but uh, I am. I go to big book meetings. I go to other meetings. I uh, And I do my uh, urine screens without fear about getting caught. I don't have to manipulate anything. I don't have to worry about when did I use last, you know. Uh, how can I get out of this urine today because it might be positive? It's like not really a problem, you know, because I'm sober. And uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, um, I have children that I've regained their trust. Um, I have love in my life from family and friends, and um, I'm very blessed. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jenny. Um, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to say a few things. Um, like she said, that's my mom. And I heard a lot of that for the first time just now. And it was weird. <laughs> um, but it was cool. Um, it was really hard growing up when she wasn't there. Uh, living with my dad and my three older siblings, well, twin and two older brothers. And he was drinking as well. And we got on him a lot for it just because we were like, you know, mom's going through all this and stuff. And that was hard. And it was hard when she kept going in and out of treatments. And for a while, I actually stopped answering the phone completely because I was afraid it would be my mom calling to tell me she was back in treatment. And I didn't want that to happen again. So I just... Thought if I avoided it, it wouldn't happen. Um, wasn't exactly the case. My brother or sister would answer the phone. <laughs> um, but I'm really proud of my mom for all the stuff she's gone through. And I know it's been really difficult, as it has been for everyone in our family. And actually, now my dad has joined AA, and he's been sober for almost eight months, which is really exciting. Um, I never really thought that my family would be one where, you know, we had all this trouble with this kind of stuff and, you know, both my parents would need to be in recovery and all that stuff. I just didn't really expect it would happen, but I just have to say that I'm glad it did and 
I am really proud of both of my parents for what they've gone through. So, thank you. I'm deck alcoholic. It's really important for me to say this this morning. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be sober. I'm grateful for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I come to this meeting because I want to stay healthy. I, I try to focus on being properly self-orientated. I try to give back as much as I can to people. And when you st- started your talk and you talked about not having enough, uh, today I can tell you with all the sincerity, I have enough. We start our morning, Karen and I, with a prayer. And the prayer is, thank you, God, for this day of life. Thank you for the love that we have, for the love that we share. Keep us honest. Help us to appreciate the blessings that we have, to be humble and kind and generous, to know and to do thy will today, to the very best of our ability with what we have today. And that's enough. I think that if I had, if I had the ability to give away what's in my heart, there would be an awful lot of laughter in these rooms. But I know I cannot give it to anybody who doesn't want it. But today I know my heart is rich and full with love and compassion and understanding and, and, a, and a sincerity and conviction that this program works. There is no doubt in my mind that anybody that wants recovery is willing to accept the gift of God's grace can find the happiness and joy that they want. So thank you all for being here and uh, just thank you. Good morning, I'm Francisco Alcoholic. Uh, I loved your share. You uh, sort of told my story. Um, and uh, I was also one of those persons that was totally self-reliant. You see, I thought God was for the weak. And um, and I, 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 was, I thought I was doing God a favor and saying, God, you don't have to worry about me. I got it. And he would look down and say, thanks, Francisco. I, I got plenty of stuff on my plate. And, um, and uh, of course I'd always thank you, God, to, you know, do the, do the symbolic gesture of thanking him for things. But I knew that I, I had done it because God helps those who help themselves. And, um, and so that, that, uh, that led me, uh, to, to hell. And, uh, I remember coming to AA. I came to AA for 10 years, and I would walk in the rooms, and I would feel so out of place and so awkward. And I'd come right before the meeting started and leave right after it finished. And and I would look at people, and I would judge them, and I'd say, you know, should I accept them? Uh, should I be part of them? And um, and the very the last time that I came to AA, it was totally opposite. It was, I felt so, so low. I, I would, I would, my mind was saying, would you please accept me? Uh, and the only place I felt somewhat comfortable was at AA because I could look in, I could see it in their eyes that they understood. They understood. And when I go home or go to work or anywhere else, it was hard to look at people in the eyes because I thought they could see what a piece of, you know, what I was. Um, 
but anyway, I, I, um, I like, <clears throat> see, I had, my mind is, is funny. Uh, you know, what really helped me, uh, was when I went to a meeting and this guy says, um, you know, a lot of people say, you don't have to work. I mean, you don't have to work. You don't have to drink if you don't want to. And I say, duh. You know, and, and he says, you don't even have to drink if you want to. And that raised my ears and, and, and then they said, God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, but he will not do what you can do for yourself. And, uh, that plus willingness, uh, started me on this path. And even though I didn't really believe that this uh, would work for me, I had no other option. And, and, and there was some hope if I didn't drink, if I did drink, because the drinking had stopped working for me. But anyway, uh, I like what I heard this one guy uh, say on the tape, you know. I agree, this program is for people who want it, not for people who need it. But I, I, I like when he took it a little step further. This isn't even for a program for people who want it. It's for people who do it. Because uh, I wanted, oh, I wanted to get sober. And I wanted what you had. But I wasn't willing to believe that these things would work for me. But uh it's just like Joe and Charlie uh said on this tape. He says, if I give you a dollar and tell you to go across the street to McDonald's and bring me back a hamburger, um, you know, and you've never done that before, but you're willing to believe that it'll work, so you walk across the street and son of a gun, you know, you come back with a hamburger and, and then you do it again and you now you believe uh that that works. And uh, if you do it enough times then you have faith that it works. And that's how this program started working for me. I, I would do it even though I, you know, just because I was willing. And it started working. And I was feeling better. <clears throat> and um, and that belief turned to faith. Now I know that this program works. So, uh, you know, the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I like... The, some I hear so many people say it's contingent on our, of our spiritual condition, and uh, again, I uh, some days my condition of spirituality is not too good, uh, but I'm, I'm willing to 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 maintenance it, like I maintenance my car, you know. And then uh, some days it's running better than others. Uh, so um, anyway, I I have a lot of gratitude today. Um, I know. Where, where you, where you were. And uh, I was there and, uh, I might not ever, uh, one last thing I'll say. I love this thing. It says, if I ever get to heaven, it's because I'm running away from hell. Uh, I read that in Comes of Age, I think, and I like that because I'm still running, uh, and I never want to stop running. My name is John. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Welcome, Doug. Good to see you. Every time I see Doug, I think of his talk about the wounded healer. I got up here today to say a little bit about why they call us early bird and about, you mentioned the man that started this thing. I met a lot of people in AA that influenced my life and Hal was one of those people. In my early sobriety, I went to CCAD. Uh, Coach Conway invited me to go, and they had an early bird meeting, and Hal was there. And then when I got to, finally got to found this thing, we went to the spring meetings, the Texas meeting where Morristown and Hal was there. 
Now I come to IDAA and house here and all these meetings. We had early bird meetings, 6.30, not 7. <laughs> but at all these meetings, Hal shared the same message. And if you have, if you've got an AA reflection book, February 24th is the thing he wrote in there about his attitude of gratitude, about a grateful alcoholic, a sober alcoholic. Then also, and every time he talked, he talked about some books that he liked to talk about. He talked about one back in 1632. He said they wrote a book. And he talked about the presence of God, Brother Lawrence. And I happened to have that book I'd bought from Hazleton. And so the other thing he talked about, and it took me eight years to get one, I, in the front of your 24-hour book, it talks about a book called God Calling. And your meditations were taken out of that. So uh, eight years after listening to him for eight years, I went to the Western Club one morning to get some grapevines to take to the prison. And on top of this big sack of grapevines was this book, God Calling. I said, my God, that's for me. <laughs> Didn't get to the prison. Anyway, how I like to talk about this. And there's two favorite things in there he talked about. One's May the 3rd. He talked about kill self now. He, tell, he told us about being at a meeting, and they were talking about the third step. And a lady comes in late and sits down and says, what's the meeting about? And it was about the time that this guy was talking about killing himself now, this guy said, suicide, suicide. That was one of Hal's jokes. That's what it is. You know, you got to die before you're reborn. And uh, the other one is May the 1st. talks about delay is not denial. Many of us pray and we wonder, God, why doesn't something happen? But see, prayers are just requests. And in this thing it said, God answers all prayers. Yes, no, and wait a while. Just because he doesn't answer right now doesn't mean he's not going to answer it. It says a lot of times you have to make, he has to make arrangements because other people are involved. And he gave everybody free will. And until all this works out, your answer, your prayer is still on hold. So if you're having trouble praying and you wonder why, when, when it's, you're going to be answered, it will be. God answers all prayers. But sometimes it's no. So anyway, I just thought that I'd share some of those things about how. But the other thing I wanted to talk about at our uh, the last IDA he came to was in Oklahoma City. And before that, the last couple of years, my old friend John Butcher had been inca- incapacitated and we used to share a room, and then I'd haul him around in a wheelchair to get to these meetings. So when Hal called and he was coming to uh, Oklahoma City, uh, he asked me if I would help him get around. And I said, yeah, I'll help you do anything, you know. So when I went to the hotel to register, they said, your room is up in that. The top floor was, he had to have a special key in the elevator to get there. And they gave me one of those keys, and I thought, why are they putting me up here? Well, how it made arrangements, my room was right next to his. So anytime he wanted to go anyplace, he'd just pick up the phone. He says, I'm ready to go. Well, anyway, I pushed him around to that, that group. I mean, to that, the back and forth, those meetings. And we went out to eat together and Hal was real sick and he could hardly eat. He didn't, he just wasn't himself. And it wasn't until the end of the meeting I found out that since he got back home to Washington, he was going to go on dialysis. And that was his last meeting, and he died that November, I think. So he sp- he spent his last days of his last physical health coming to one more IDA meeting to share that same message that he'd shared over the 20-some years I'd known him. 
And so, and the same with my friend John Butcher. John had had congestive heart failure and he'd about died three or four times on the road. He'd be going here and there. He died. He went to the Salvation Army every Thursday to take his meeting to the out, to down and outers. And he was there at a meeting and as he was leaving that meeting, he had his heart attack and died. So he, he, he died at his last strength he gave to trying to help other alcoholics. So. Those are the people to me that show this thing. We can talk about a lot of things. We talk about attitude of gratitude. You know, that's not a feeling. That is what you do. And the way that you show that is when you get out there and try to help other alcoholics. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you'll stay sober. Thank you.